Genesis 46, 26 to 47, 12. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to, to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able man among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And J Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. They have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers, gave them a possession in the land of Egypt in the best of the land, in the land of Ramis, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the numbers of their dependents. This is the word of the Lord. It's quite common for people to conceive of life as a journey. It's a metaphor that makes sense. As time passes, as we go through different experiences, as a model, it, it helps make sense of the human experience, but it does raise some questions. For instance, if life is a journey, where are we going? And so there are numerous answers within various religions. There are answers that are distinct, but um, often similar in that the idea is that, well, death is not the end. And so, so this life is not all there is. After you die, there's something else. And, and what you conceive of that something and what happens when you're there has a big influence on in how you understand today. But there are also secular ideals for uh, what the end of life, the goal is. It could be retirement. 
So for people who were brought up knowing that you eat your vegetables and your starch and then you have dessert after dinner, uh, if you just kill yourself now, uh, you get through the slog of work, eventually it will pay off and you'll have something at the end before death, but some sort of payoff and rest. Uh, but there are other secular conceptions of, of where is life ultimately going. You know, there's this idea of making your mark in the world. It's kind of a, an idea of, of eternality in, in some sense. It could be having influence, having done something that uh, is a force for good after you leave this world. Or having done something so that your name is in the history book. And so there's some sort of echo of immortality, or at least something beyond the 70 or 80 years that we average. But for some, you know, none of those end points, those goals, really seem real or compelling. The idea is, well, the, the journey really is the thing along the way. That's really what it's about. It's not about where we end up, but it's about the process. And the various ways of thinking about these things all shed light on certain things, but most of them are deficient for certain hard periods, periods of tragedy, um, or even a period like the extended COVID period, which is hard, but in a different way than, um, than other kinds of hardships, uh, you know, in the last century, world wars and things like that and genocides. COVID is different and it affected people differently. And for some, it, it may have felt like some of those more extreme um, plagues and things like that. But for many, the term in the last few weeks that's become popular is languishing. That seems to be what we're experiencing, the sense of we're going through life, but it's this period where we can't put our finger on why we're, we're not thriving, but we're weakening. And so, so what, what trajectory is, is going to actually help us to be able to weather the various experiences of life. Uh, you know, life will have good periods and then we're not usually asking what this is about because we're just enjoying it. <laughs> um, but it's the challenges that make us ask the question of what am I doing and how do I get, how do I sustain life through this? How do I make good choices? What, what is the purpose of this? Those kinds of questions. The Bible presents a model that doesn't make life easy, doesn't guarantee success. But if you grasp it, it does prepare you for the various scenarios and circumstances we inevitably face, and we don't know what we will face. And so this model of journeying or sojourning is part of the history of God's people. And we see that in the passage today that we're looking at where Jacob goes on this long journey to finally see his son Joseph, who he thought was dead. And so it's another powerful moment in the Joseph story that he sees his son for the first time. But he makes this long journey um, where Joseph has to send, uh, you know, uh, resources to, to help him because in his old age, he needs assistance to make sure he survives the journey. And he gets there uh, to the end of his life. Now, it will go on more than just in this, this brief period. Um, but this is his final journey until after he dies and he's brought back to where he comes from. Uh, but this identity as a, as a journeying people is part of Jacob's experience, but it precedes him in terms of Abraham and Isaac, but it, it goes after him as well because his descendants will stay in this land for a long period of time, but this is not their permanent resting place. So as a growing people, they will be brought out. Uh, and so, so the identity of God's people as, as journeying through this world, when Jacob stands before Pharaoh, another Sort of a profound moment in the Bible. Pharaoh asks him a question about his age, and it's interesting the language Jacob uses, and this is in chapter 47, verses 8 and 9. He says, the years of my sojourning are 130 years. 
His life has been experienced as a certain rooted, <laughs> rootlessness. He's been sojourning for 130 years, and then he ends up saying at the end of that at verse 9, they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. So Abraham and Isaac, also sort of a wandering people, people that need to trust God day by day. Where will he lead us? Will he provide for us? And that experience doesn't change. His descendants in chapter 47, verse 4, um, Jacob's sons, five of them stand before Pharaoh, and their description of what they're doing is, we have come to sojourn in the land. And so they too are experiencing this period of famine as a, as a period without roots. And so, so they're going somewhere. And so what I want to talk about today is the identity of God's people, God's community. In any given time and place, there's an aspect of life that we're journeying. We're so somewhere. And the call to follow Jesus is a call to follow. And he says, I'm leading you someplace and I will be with you in the present. And yet, for people considering Christianity, it could be hard to conceive of, what do I get from Christianity? Not realizing what you get is somebody that will help you, walk with you, and lead you. But for Christians, you find yourself saying, well, that sounds good, but moment by moment, <laughs> I don't know where God is. I don't know how to make sense of this. And so part of the Christian life is, is having to depend daily on God, on following. And the more we're able to grasp that, the more we, we have a sustaining hope that helps us move forward, and a sustaining presence that helps us take advantage of any given situation where maybe it's a situation to learn and grow, maybe it's a situation to serve, maybe it's a situation to make your way through, any scenario could be different. But I want to talk about three characteristics of God's people as a sojourning people, and in any given time and place, they will be peculiar, they'll be growing, and they will be giving. So I want to begin with God's people being peculiar. Um, God assembles a people to himself, and he calls them to follow him. Um, but in the instability of the world, there's a dynamic such that at any time and place, God's people are meant to be there. And certainly the vision of Christianity is that the invitation to join with Jesus and his people is for all people in all time periods. And what that means is, in a certain sense, Christianity may take shape and form and have certain expressions that are distinct to certain people, certain places, certain time periods. So certain, th some of the somewhat superficial aspects, I don't mean this negatively, but something like how we sing will look different place to place. Or, or the kinds of ways that we interpret fellowship when the church gathers, what do we do? Uh, there could be cultural influences, but... There are certain things that are meant to be steady and steadfast that are to characterize God's people everywhere, always. And at any given time or place, some of those things will be a major asset to wherever we are and will be recognized as such. Something of the greatness of Jesus and his ways, when we're faithful to follow them, people will see, they will admire, they will want it. But there's always going to be something that's out of accord, where, where those particular people need to adjust and change because they're out of line with the good ways of Jesus. And that creates a tension, which means that sometimes Christians will simply be thought of as weird, but sometimes will be thought of as offensive. We're not seeking to be offensive. Uh, but inevitably, in any time and place, some things will offend. And depending on the time and depending on the place, it could be different things. In 21st century New York, Christian sexual, sexual ethics tends to be thought of as peculiar. But for some people, it's not just weird, but it's infuriating. But yet in much of the world, 
and probably most of the world throughout time, uh, Christian sexual ethics, there's nothing weird about it. <laughs> that tends to be a modern Western phenomenon. But there are certain things about Christianity in, in the 21st century that when it goes other places, people would say, we like this, but that, that we think is weird and it's not attractive, or it offends me. If, if God calls me to, to follow him, should I really do that? That troubles me. And depending on where you are, where you live, those things will change a little bit. God's people will always be peculiar. It's interesting as, as Joseph's brothers arrive in Egypt. Now, Joseph has been there since he's 17. He's been there more than 20, 20 years. He's an insider. He's now a, a powerful person. He's been given new clothing. He's been, he came young enough that maybe he speaks without an accent. Um, he has, he has learned the advanced culture because the Egyptians were very wise and sophisticated. And Joseph is a leader there. And so, so he blends in. He looks Egyptian. But now his kind of hillbillyish family from Canaan shows up and they don't fit. <laughs> They're sojourning people. Um, but part of that is built into who they are uh, in terms of their uh, profession. And so Joseph is going to coach his brothers before they meet Pharaoh. The ideal is to have Pharaoh give us a distinct place within Egypt. We don't want to assimilate. We want to remain somewhat distinct, but we want to thrive. And they wind up getting one of the the most uh, prosperous places in the land. It's God's provision for them. But but uh, Joseph is coaching them. So in, in chapter 46, verses 33 and 34, it says, when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, now perhaps he should have said, listen carefully, memorize these words. Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So we're already getting hints. There's a cultural clash here in the previous chapters when Joseph's brothers come and Joseph gives them this banquet. Our narrator tells us, but the Egyptians don't eat with the Hebrew people. See, the Egyptians are very sophisticated, and I imagine part of that sophistication was kind of an elite generosity. We will welcome, we will bless, but they are different from us. <laughs> And we're not going to, we'll, we'll, we'll bring them here and we'll feed them, but we're not necessarily going to sit at the table with them. And now Joseph says, you will, here's what you say. Your servants have been keepers of livestock. We don't need to lie. Maybe some of your livestock are sheep. <laughs> but here's the thing. What a strong word. The Egyptians think shepherds are an abomination. Maybe you could do a milder translation. They look down on shepherds a little bit, but that's pretty strong language. When they see you, you're not one of them. And so say we keep livestock, cattle, various animals, and yeah, there's a few sheep thrown in. And Joseph is maybe, I don't know if this is what he's thinking, but by telling them explicitly, say you keep livestock because shepherds are an abomination, there's this tension of remaining distinct. Look, we're different people, that stands out, and we do different things, but but maybe if you could soften it a little bit, it may bring greater Pharaoh, uh, greater favor before Pharaoh. And in a classic moment where Joseph's perhaps unsophisticated brothers haven't caught the nuances, Joseph says, when he asks you what you do, remember, you are keepers of livestock. 47 verse 3, Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. Uh, and there it is. 
Joseph may be praying, oh, Lord, <laughs> help us, help, help us. And Pharaoh was gracious. It wasn't a problem. But that tension of Joseph, the vulnerability, I fit in, and here's my family. It's kind of like when, when we as a church think, let's have some great event that you could invite your coworkers to. And then you think, my coworkers know that I go to church. My coworkers know these things. But, but if I invite them to actually show up, <laughs> will, will the, the minister have the nuanced language from, from my workplace? Or will he say something that makes me think, I probably should have not invited them here? Uh, or any of us, I mean, you know, kids as they go to school, you know, certain things are valued. Certain things have credibility. If you're a great athlete, if you're good looking, if you're talented, if you're pretty, particularly smart, all of those things have value. But, but being religious, maybe it's okay. Maybe nobody cares. But there could be a, a sense in which you simply don't include it because it has no value. There's no, nothing about that will be compelling to others. Um, but eventually you just learn this is something that's separate, distinct. And then as you get older, you realize not only is it a peculiar thing, oh, you go to church, you believe different things, but sometimes we could start to feel like it might be perceived that we're abomination to some degree. In social circles, you get asked a certain question and you think, I don't know how to answer this because I, I want to control the scenario if I say too much. They're going to make all sorts of assumptions about what that means. And so no matter who you are, where you live, there are parts of the world where there's where Christianity is illegal. You will be persecuted. You will be arrested. There's so much freedom in New York. We tend to be maybe left at. We don't get invited back. Maybe behind the scenes, people may not uh, promote you because of certain views. It's not supposed to be that way, but uh, that often happens. There is a sense in which remaining peculiar and distinct is part of the Christian life. So on the one hand, we need to become okay with being weird, because <laughs> there's nothing wrong with being weird. But we don't want to be weird because we're, we lack compassion, because we lack wisdom. We're not looking to be offensive because there's a problem in us. Sometimes Christians, you know, because Jesus warns us, if they reject me, they will reject you. Sometimes we're being rejected not because of the the Christ-likeness, but because of something in us that needs to change, but we rationalize not changing by saying, oh, I'm being persecuted because I'm a Christian. That does happen. We need to guard ourselves against that. Sometimes it's not that uh, Jesus is an abomination, but our, our failure to conform to his image fully is creating that tension. But Jesus does warn us, if you were to live a perfect and righteous life, no matter who you are and where you live, something of faithfulness to me is going to put people off. And so Jesus, on the one hand, says if they, uh, if they've, if they both accept you, they accept me. And if they've seen me, they've seen the Father, the mission of the church, go out and live faithful lives and, and look at the influence you can have. But Jesus does say if they rejected me, they will reject you. What was Jesus rejected for? He was upright. He was faithful. He was a person of truth and integrity. And we can be assured that part of the journey of life is to go through seasons where remaining faithful, remaining upright, will carry with it cost, stress, challenge, where you'll find yourself saying, how do I shape this in a way that minimizes the consequences, which is fair, but what is the line of compromise? How distinct do I need to remain to be? 
and be prepared to not be accepted. For other people to look down on me. It shouldn't be that way. But Jesus says, uh, as you get better, a world that's not getting better with you will sometimes push back defensively. And so part of being a, a sojourner uh, is to remain peculiar. Now, here's a second characteristic of God's people. We're growing. Now, there's a literal way that Jacob is growing in that, uh, you know, if you look at the numbers in these stories, Jacob shows up now at 70. You know, think of this 12 sons, and now they show up with 70, and think of Jesus' ministry with his 12 disciples and sending out 70. All of this is significant. But when I'm talking about growing here, I'm not talking about the fact that, that his descendants are literally growing according to the promise of Abraham, where they will become hundreds and then thousands. But I, I want to focus a little bit more on the life of Jacob. Because he, he shows up talking about his own sojourning. And his life is a life of growth. It's a life of change. And so on the one hand, God's people are, are peculiar. Jacob showing up as a shepherd, the Egyptians will look down at him because he's Hebrew, because he's a shepherd. And that's just who he is. That's a problem with Egypt. But Jacob himself does not come as an upright, perfect human being. And so some of his suffering is just incidental. Why is the famine there? Well, God is working within the famine, but we don't know why the famine is happening. The famine is not happening as a punishment to Jacob. Uh, why do the Egyptians look down on Jacob for being a shepherd? Well, that's not because Jacob has done anything wrong. But much of Jacob's suffering in his life has been consequences of his own wrongdoing. So there's this interesting exchange when Pharaoh meets Jacob in chapter 47, verses 8 and 9. Pharaoh says to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of my years of sojourning are 130 years. And evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. What a, what a tragic description. He asked how old you are, and his answer is few and evil have been the days of my life. Now that, you know, our translation is using these strong words, abomination, evil, that's not our vocabulary. You could translate this where Jacob says, my life has been hard. That's really what he's saying. But the word evil in the book of Genesis has a particular significance where we're told to eat of the tree of life and to be filled with goodness. And we're warned about a tree where there's knowledge of good, but there's knowledge of evil. And, and in the beginning of Genesis, humanity turning from God takes that evil and with the knowledge of it brings a mess. And now Jacob, who has not lived filled with life, but he has known the ways of evil. He says, my days have been few and they've been evil. I've not attained to that of my father's. Now, he doesn't know that he's not about to die. He lives longer, but there seems to be this sense in this section that Jacob thinks this is the end. <laughs> um, and what a tragic way to describe your life. It's not simply that it was hard, but it was evil. And of course, Jacob's story, he was a twin. And there's this picture of the, the twins wrestling and moving like often happens, uh, you know, in a pregnant woman. But, but at the birth, his brother Esau comes out first the firstborn, the one with the rights, but Jacob is described as holding on to his heel. And he's given this name Jacob, could be translated variously, but has the implication of being a cheat. And so Jacob will, will do something really terrible to his brother. He takes advantage of Esau. Now Esau has to take responsibility for his own moral weakness. Esau's starving, 
and he exchanges his birthright. And so Esau is an example of what not to do. He should not have done that. But Jacob is not exactly upright, taking advantage of the weakness of his brother, that he should see his foolishness and act as protector, but instead he swindles him. And then he deceives his own father, the father who sought to bless the firstborn, but Jacob dresses up as Esau and, and takes advantage of his father's weakness. So again, Jacob is a guy who takes advantage of weakness. That is not a trait that God fosters. Instead, he warns us against that. And then he takes advantage of his father-in-law, Laban. And Jacob's life is filled with the outworkings. What happens when you swindle your brother of his birthright and his blessing? You need to flee. And Jacob lives with a constant awareness. If I ever bump into my brother, he will kill me. And that's part of Jacob's existence, his, his whole life, until the point where he reconciles with Esau, that he sends ahead gifts, thinking, how do I placate my brother? Because surely, if my brother's like me, he will want to kill me. And we find the good news, Jacob, is your brother's not like you. <laughs> but there's Jacob who has this moment, Jacob who suffers in many ways. And it's not that there's a direct consequence that because you swindled your brother and father, now your brothers and your, you know, your children will, will do this as a repayment. It's not that there's a one-to-one -one correlation, but there is a sense in which we reap what we sow. And so, so Jacob swindled his own father lying to him. It's not that he deserved to have his own sons lie to him, but it sort of makes sense that, that he would have uh, his own sons tell him, your beloved son has been mauled by animals and is dead. It's not that the Bible portrays that as because you lied to your father, your kids will lie to you. But it sort of does make sense, doesn't it, that you live this way and you reap what you sow. If you, Jacob, if you do evil, expect the days of your life to be characterized by evil. And so even um, Jacob's parenting it's not that the way he parent meant that he deserved to be deceived and to think that his beloved son was dead, but, but what are the outcomes of having this one son that is so favored that you have the rest of your sons resentful? And again, it's not like, well, because of Jacob's parenting, he deserved to think that Joseph was killed, which wasn't true. But there's something about a way of life that is consistent. The, the kinds of things he did to others are, are, are kinds of things that are happening to him. And, and what we see, though, in the Bible is, yes, when you do wrong, there are consequences. There, that's the way it should be. Part of the problem with this world is when you do wrong, often nothing happens, but it appears as if you prosper and you do right, and then bad things happen. That's the problem we have. Jacob can't fully claim that. He struggled a, a lot because of his own wrongdoing. And yet what we find is he has a promise uh, made to his fathers, made to Abraham, and passed down through Isaac. And we find that Jacob is imperfect, but he wrestles with God. And in that wrestling, uh, he receives a new identity. His name is changed. So Jacob becomes Israel. He becomes not a guy whose destiny is to be remembered as a cheat, as a swindler, as one who takes advantage of the weak but he becomes remembered as one who received the promise to Abraham and Isaac and experienced God's blessing despite his failings. And God restored to him what he didn't deserve. You know, Jacob didn't come 
to Egypt for riches and for fame and for a better life. He came for his son. That's all that he wanted. And he saw, despite all of the wrong things that he did, that at the end of his days, his, the Lord um, brought him that blessing to see his own son again. He never thought he would see him. And that's God's kindness. Did Jacob deserve that? We might read through his story and say, Jacob deserved <laughs> to think that his son was lost after what he did. But God doesn't give him what he deserves. And, and Jacob grows by the end of his days, his, his ability to say, my days have been few and evil. There's a humility to it where he seems to be owning a bit of, of his being a hard guy who had a hard wife. Um, I had a conversation this week with a friend of mine who told me a story that I thought was interesting and connected to this. He knew a guy that went to prison, and he wound up in the same prison with David Berkowitz. David Berkowitz, uh, known by the, the name the Son of Sam. He was a serial killer in the 1970s here in New York. You know, and it's interesting, any, any sort of culture or subculture has their own ethics, their own way of doing things. And in prison, there is a certain sense of value and morality. There are certain crimes that are admired. So that's a little bit weird to admire crime. Um, but there are certain crimes that, that are looked down upon. <laughs> um, being a murderer could often mean that you're tough and people respect that. But going around and shooting women, sneaking up on them, uh, the son of Sam was not an admired person, at least not by this guy. And so whenever this guy would see him, David Berkowitz, he would taunt him. He would growl at him. He would intimidate him. Now, one interesting thing about David Berkowitz's story is he, became, he apparently became a Christian in prison. So here, here's this serial killer who became a Christian. I wonder what that alone does to you and <laughs> your own sense of injustice. I think, like most people, you think, that's uncomfortable. Does that mean this guy can go around killing people? And then he just gets a free pass. He gets forgiveness. Um, that's actually really hard. What, is it, what are the implications that a serial killer could become a Christian? Well, one of the challenges for us is if we say God's forgiveness can't be such that it, it includes forgiving David Berkowitz. I would not fault you at the slightest for thinking that. But where is the line? So David Berkowitz is on the other side of it. But if that's your concept of forgiveness, where are you in relationship to the line? And so if we're not willing to, to really grasp the radical nature of grace, we ourselves will sojourn with the weight of guilt, with the weight of fear, because of the unbelief that forgiveness really is as radical as it's portrayed in the Bible. Well, I don't know about the soul of David Berkowitz or the justice of God, but apparently he's a Christian and he gave a tape to this guy. This would have been 15, 20 years ago, I suspect. So this friend's friend, so I don't know the guy directly, but the guy telling me the story said his friend went through a period of great despair while he was in prison. And he hated life, so much so that he decided he was going to kill himself, which is not easy in a prison. And so somehow he came up with a plan to forge a noose for himself. And I don't know how these things come together, but apparently while he was doing that, he put on this tape that David Berkowitz had given him. And it's a Christian tape, uh, and as he's listening to this message and forging this noose out of whatever it was, his clothing, I have no idea, he puts it around his neck, and he's listening, and he's listening to something that's telling him a very different story, a very different understanding of life, a very different possibility for himself, his past, and his future. And the Spirit of God grips this guy in this prison cell and wakes him up that all of a sudden he wants to live, and he doesn't just want to live, but he wants to live 
in light of what he's hearing, the call of Christ, the hopefulness, the promise of growth and change. He leans back, my friend says, as he's listening, and he has this noose around his neck, and as he leans back, the noose simply becomes undone. Whatever he had come up with would not have killed him. His plan was to kill himself. He would not have been successful. But there he was in that moment, despairing of of life, that his intention was to end it right there. God's intention was not to end his life. But in that moment where he was doing everything he could to leave this earth, God spoke to him through some faithful Christian servant with a message that was passed on to him through a serial killer. I mean, what a weird story of how God calls an undeserving prisoner through a questionably more undeserving prisoner. I don't know how to evaluate these things, but somehow God is at work in these strange places so that some minister somewhere who is recorded, his voice is heard in a moment of despair. And David Berkowitz is part of this guy's salvation story. David Berkowitz, I think, never getting out of prison. This guy is now out of prison um, and serving the Lord. And it's that kind of story that creates a possibility where we're in the Joseph story. Here you have Jacob saying, I never thought I would see my son. And he didn't deserve to see him, but in verse 30, Israel says to Joseph in this powerful moment, Joseph and Jacob meet and they're weeping. Israel says, now let me die since I've seen your face and know that you are still alive. Jacob didn't want wealth. He didn't want fame. He didn't want to go to where it was more prosperous. He wanted his son and he thought he lost his son. And God gives him what he doesn't deserve, shows him grace, returns his son to him, Joseph. Who could have ever thought that would happen? But more than that, a son who is now a man of authority and prosperity and generosity. And so he gets not only his son, but he gets to live 17 more years. I see the, the narrative seems to say he's so old, he's going to die at any moment. He lives 17 more years in Goshen with his son Joseph providing for him. And again, you don't want to make too much of the numbers in the Bible, but Joseph was 17 when he was sold into slavery. Jacob cared for his son for 17 years. And now in the story, his son is going to care for him for 17 years. And it's that turnaround that we keep seeing in the Joseph story that says this world is hard and these terrible things happen. Some things we could explain, some things we can't explain. But God keeps showing up and not giving us what we deserve, but giving us another chance and blessing us. And so inevitably, people tend to think through, what is life about? What are my options? And you ask the question and say, is Christianity the most compelling faith for me? Is it, is it what I would choose? In a sense, we're saying, is Christianity good enough? Or is there a better option? And when we think that way, there's a lot that's compelling with Christianity. Convinced. It's when we start to fear that we're not good enough for anything else. When you start to think that the laws of this religion, I, I can't keep them. Or the, the, the nature of these people, it's too late. I'm not one of them. Or because I know I'm stubborn and I don't change, I'll never live up to this. It's when we start to say that it's, it's not simply discerning what's good enough for me. What do I want? We start to get the sense, I don't know that I'm good enough for anything. That Christianity becomes utterly unique in the world. Because only Jesus is the one who comes to the lost, to the broken, to the hurting, to those who have no hope and says, 
yeah, you may be experiencing some of what you deserve and you may fear you will get more. But if you come to me, you won't get what you deserve. You'll get grace. And Jesus is the only one who really offers that in such a thorough and profound way that we don't have the categories for it. But that's what helps us to grow. It's once we grasp that, that when we realize we're not defined by our past or to what family we were born in or to our genetics, all of those things are influences, but they're not determinative if the Spirit of God can make all things new. If God can come and bring change and forgiveness, you can grow. And we see that in the life of Jacob, who he got what he deserved. His days were short and evil. (laughs) But he also got what he didn't deserve. He got longer life, and he got a heritage that he's remembered, not as Jacob, but as Israel, the father of nations. And so God's people will be peculiar, will be growing. Here's the last thing. God's people will always be a giving people. And we find that Jacob, who had been the one who takes, he took his brother's birthright. He took the blessing from Isaac. But the promise of Abraham comes to him, and he takes that. And once that's received, it, it requires you to be somebody who starts to give. Because there are various promises that Abraham received that were reiterated to Isaac and then to Jacob. And they included descendants. You will have offspring. And it included land, you will have a place, but it included blessing, and you will bless the nations. Jacob is now with his descendants. He's in a new land, but not the land that's promised to him. But he comes before Pharaoh, and it's very interesting what we read in 47 verse 7. Jacob, uh, Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. You know, in a lot of cultures, Jewish culture, a lot of the various Arabic cultures, more traditional Christian cultures, like in the Eastern Orthodox uh, churches, there's this culture of blessing as a greeting. There's nothing remarkable here that, that Jacob comes and he blesses Pharaoh. But, you know, as a reader, there, there, there is this contrast, this stark contrast between this moment of this insignificant guy, Jacob. All he has is a promise. God says one day you'll be great but very little of it has been realized. He's now a big family. He's not a nation. And he comes before Pharaoh, who is filled with wisdom and power and authority and armies and riches. You read the story, and it really looks like like Jacob is this nobody, and there's nobody greater than Pharaoh. And so you'd think that the nature of this is Jacob coming and saying, Pharaoh, will you bless me and my family and give us a place to live? And that surely is part of it. But part of the fulfillment of the promise is that things have gone well for Pharaoh because of God's promise to Abraham. Joseph has gone ahead to save his own family. But God's purposes of providing for his family provides for Pharaoh. Why is Pharaoh not poor at this time? Why is the famine not destroying him and his nation? Well, let's be revealed to Joseph what would happen over 14 years. And Joseph proposed a plan. And now Pharaoh is there still with his power, authority, and wealth. And he knows that it's largely because of Joseph and Joseph's God. Egypt has been blessed because God sent Joseph. Jacob's family will be blessed because God sends Joseph. But there's something that's hard to see here as Jacob (laughs) 
the poor old dying guy who's had a hard and evil life stands before a prosperous Pharaoh and he blesses him. And then when he leaves in verse 10, Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. There is a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham as Jacob blesses him. There's something here in, in the unseen reality of who really is going to be the future, who really is living a proper way of life. See, um, the Egyptians thought that shepherds were an abomination. But Moses, who writes these words, is a shepherd. <laughs> and at the end of his life, he says, one day you will come and you'll want a king like the other nations. And he warns them, don't look at the kings of the other nations and think that is what you should want. But you will do it. And God has led us and shepherded us through this, but you're still going to ask for a king. Don't get a king that wants armies and harems and respect, because that's how the world does things. And so years later, Israel demands a king, and they raise up Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. And he looks the part. He's tall and he's handsome, but he, he doesn't make it. And instead, they call David a shepherd. And David is young and doesn't seem impressive, but, but God's power is in him. And he becomes the image of the king. And now uh, this heritage of shepherds that would lead to Jesus coming. Somebody who comes and declares a kingdom, and yet he doesn't wear a robe or a crown. He's not impressive. And yet crowds constantly marvel because he doesn't have the measures of success, the, the training and the pedigree and the social circle. And people say, but there's something in him, which is what this world needs. And Caesar doesn't have it. And Herod and Pilate don't have it. And they recognize the uniqueness of Jesus who comes not in the image of worldly power and authority, but in the very form of the kinds of people that those with power and authority in this world look down on, the peculiar types, the abominations. And yet Jesus stands before Pilate, Pilate saying, this man is innocent. There's no reason to really kill him. And yet the nature of the world is, but the best thing is to do that. What is God's purpose in that? Uh, what, what Jesus tells us is that he suffered death not because of his own crimes, but he suffered for ours. The one who deserved honor and authority uh, bore humiliation and pain so that the, those who are considered an abomination, those who think of themselves as overcome by evil, can have forgiveness. That's the Christian gospel, that Jesus is the true and the good shepherd, the one who is sent ahead of us. He's the one who brings the blessing of Abraham uh, to all nations so that everyone is now invited to be part of this people. And the Christian identity is to say, I am to receive. I have earned nothing, but God promises and I will trust him. But when I take that, it will change me. I can be a new person. I don't need to be defined by my past or my present struggles or my future hopelessness. I can be defined by being a person of promise. And so Joseph, uh, Jacob, standing before Pharaoh, Jacob, who says, my life is few and evil. I'm a shepherd. I have nothing to offer you. He shows up and he blesses Pharaoh. He leaves and he blesses Pharaoh. And we know that, that Egypt will receive a certain blessing from God in these years, hundreds of years, as the story follows out, because they have welcomed this people. And so for you, the question is, you know, where are you going on this journey? How are you getting there? Who are you with? Jesus says, I will lead you. I will bring you to a place. I will prepare you. 
And so the invitation is to follow, to be, take on that new name, that new identity. Um, and what we're told from that, however, is that um, part of the calling of the Christian life is to bless. And Jesus even says, bless those who persecute you. Pray for those who mistreat you. That's what he did. God's promise is so sure that, that God leaves a peculiar people that even if the world rejects them, they're committed to fulfilling this promise to say, no matter where we go, we will announce God's blessing because that's what we live out of. And it protects us. It protects us from being overwhelmed, from assimilating and, and um, being caught up in all that's wrong. Instead, we're told, stay faithful to the promise and you will bless. Um, and here's something uh, to think about. You know, in the way the world works, it's easy to feel like we have nothing to offer. In a city like New York, where people have talent and wealth, uh, you, you know, you, you get to know some of the, the people that have status and authority. How can we bless them? What can we do? But the people that really have made it in New York know that wealth and fame, it's not satisfying. What do they need? Uh, there are things, the characteristics that are meant to, to make us peculiar, the kindness, the generosity. If you're a person who shows up in somebody's life and honors them, whether they're poor or they're rich, because you don't categorize them that way. If you build them up rather than tearing you down, you'll be a friend to the poor. But the surprising thing is you will give something to the rich that they cannot attain on their own. And, and we can go out into the world, and especially a place like New York, could constantly send the message, you're not good enough. <laughs> and so we go back home and we, uh, we meditate and we read a book and then we go back out there to be better. And Christianity says, you know, you're, you're perfectly fine, you're good enough if you understand the grace of Christ. But you're also useful. <laughs> you can also do something remarkably great in this city. And so go into the world and it doesn't matter if they see your greatness. It doesn't matter if they look down at you. It doesn't matter if they think they have something to give and you have nothing to offer. You go with the promise of Jesus Christ. And when you live out of that reality, we're told the promise will be fulfilled through your life, through your ministry, through your way of being in the world, wherever you go, you will bring this blessing. Let me read to you. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at, at um, uh, Genesis 48. But Jacob meets Joseph's sons. And in Genesis 48:11, Israel says to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. So here's Jacob saying, not only did I never think I would see you, but, but you have offspring and descendants. But then in verses 15 and 16, he says, he blesses them. And this is how he prepares it. He says, the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. And then he blesses them. Bless these boys. Because God was his shepherd. Because God has redeemed him from evil. He sees his days not end when he arrives in Jacob, in the, in the presence of Jacob, but he sees many years where then God's kindness starts to restore all that he thought was lost. And that's the picture we get. If God is our shepherd, he's leading us somewhere. If God is our redeemer, he redeems us even from evil. And what we're told is you're going somewhere in life. But if you're lost or if you're going to a dead end, <laughs> Jesus says, follow me. And when we follow him, we don't know everything going on. It's not neat and easy. But if God's promise is with you, you'll get through it. He will lead you. And you'll look back and find maybe God has blessed you or maybe God used you to bless others. That really is a better way to live. So I would encourage you 
this week, go out, bless the world. Pray for ways to do it, watch for it, and then do it. Let me close us in prayer. Our Father, as we assemble today, um, some of us, like Jacob, um, feel like we're overcome by evil. We need for, for it. Some of us are overcome by uh, suffering. We pray for relief. Some of us are losing a grasp on the possibility of a good future, and we pray for hope. Lord, but we pray for all of us that you would be our shepherd, that you would lead us, that you'd leave none of us behind, and by your grace, whether or not we deserve it, no matter how we live this week, that you would draw us back and move us forward. Lord, help us that we would not waste our years on earth, that we would not reap what we've sown in some terrible way, but rather um, we would take hold of what we don't deserve, your great promise, the gospel. And that would bear fruit in our lives to bring joy and to bring peace and to bring reconciliation, but that we would go out into this world as a peculiar people, a growing people, and we would give. We would give of ourselves, trusting you will always return. You will give back whatever we give away. And so maybe, may we be so joyous at blessing others that our joy becomes uh, full within us and contagious to those around us. By your spirit, do that this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.